0: Go ahead, grab your Bibles if you have them. If you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version, James chapter 4. James 4. And one of the things about, you know, when you preach through books of the Bible, which is what we primarily do here at the church, um, man, you have to preach what the text says. You don't have to. Um, but we, we intend on doing that. And so what happens is you come up to passages or you come up to a, a series of passages where you just go as a pastor, you go, oh man, like, like, we're, like we're heading into a very like dark, you know, series of weeks through James here because every week just seems like, oh man, you're just, what are you trying to do, man? Just like rip out our soul like every week. It's like, it's not me. It's, it's, it's James. It's the book. It's God's word. And um, So we're going to be talking about worldliness and even the title, right? The title sounds like, you know, it's this pre-Halloween title, Beware of Worldliness. Um, But this is where the text goes for us in uh, verses four through six. Um, So it's good um, what it is that we are drawing and receiving from God's word. Um, We're getting a lot of heavy words that are surfacing, a lot of heavy things. It's no accident Um, that this is the book and the passages that God has us going through at this particular time. We believe that God is sovereign over these things. So the fact that we have been in this place in the book at this particular time, well, there's a reason for that. We believe that God has that for us. Um, So today we're going to talk a little bit about worldliness as, as James just keeps digging down and digging down and digging down into our hearts. Well, worldliness, if we think of the concept, right, this was... This was something for me growing up, worldliness was something that you stepped into. It was kind of like there was this world out there that was pulling you in by kind of its evil gravitational pull, right? The world was over there. The world was out there. There was like this there-ness to where the world was, to what worldliness was. So for example, to stay away from there, the world, this thing that was all of its gravitational pull is trying to draw me in to to stay away from that place. Like say as a teenager meant I, I needed to make sure I didn't have an inappropriate relationship with uh, my girlfriend at the time. Right. It meant that wherever there was a party going on, I needed to not be there. Right. I had to avoid the language of the world just coming from my lips. I had to make sure that certain adult beverages didn't enter my mouth. As long as music or movies made in Hollywood didn't come into contact with my ears or my eyes, me and God, man, we were just good, right? Everything's good. I needed to to beware of worldliness because it was something out there that was trying to get in here. And what that mindset did, it did something kind of having that particular mindset and what it did was it made it seem like everything that was bad was out there. And it was trying to pollute everything that was good in here because everything in here just must be awesome. Right. Everything I got going inside must be good, must be pure, must be great. And it's all these outside influences that are just trying their hardest to seep in there and corrupt it and pollute it. That was kind of the way I was raised in the church. As we've been studying, though, the book of James, we've been learning something different. We've been learning something altogether more true, which is that the heart is where the desire for worldly passions and pleasures reside. But if we think it's all out there, then some things begin to take shape in our hearts. We become, number one, dismissive of the seriousness of indwelling sin in our lives, right? Number two, we become unaware of what's going on in our hearts if we think that the real trouble is out there and not in here. Number three, we become ignorant of our ongoing need of grace because if it's all out there and I can shield, just shield myself from everything going on out there, then I must be okay. I must not see the sin in my heart as being that bad. I must not really need God's grace as badly as the ones that are out there doing all that stuff that I listed, right? Does that make sense? But let's remember that James here, this whole book, man, he's talking to the church when he picks up in verse four of chapter four here. He says this, you adulterous people. The humble. So here's what I want us to imagine this morning. Imagine sitting down with God and asking Him to tell you what His position on worldliness actually is. How does he think of the things of the world? How does he process what's out there as opposed to what's actually stirring and going on in here? Well, James clues us in to where God is at. And he says three things. That's what we're going to unpack this morning. He tells us, first of all, that God is enemies with the world. Secondly, he said that God is jealous for his spirit. And thirdly, we learn that God has grace for the humble. And what an amazing revelation that is for us, even in these few short verses here. So the first thing we're going to unpack right now is verse 4, which tells us that God is enemies with the world. James begins with a little name-calling, doesn't he? Can you imagine getting an email newsletter from Substance Church that says, Dear Substance Church, you adulterous people, and then just going on and on and love Ronnie right at the end of it, right? Thankfully, I don't have to do it because James just did it right here. And by the way, it's not like me to you. He's speaking to me in this right here. And what we know about the word adultery is that it can be defined as unfaithfulness to the person that you've covenanted with before God. So adultery is unfaithfulness. We think of it in terms of a marriage relationship, unfaithfulness to the person that you've covenanted before God and before the world with. And then in the same way, what James is laying out here is that he tells us that committing adultery with the world means you are covenanting with the passions and pleasures and systems of the world over and above faithfulness to God. Because as we learn from Jesus in Matthew six twenty four. remember what Jesus said when he said, no one can serve two masters. He said, for either he will hate the one and he will love the other or he will be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. So when James uses the word, the really cheery phrase that he opens up this verse with, you adulterous people, he clarifies by telling us that it's friendship with the world that puts someone in the position of being an enemy of God. Man, that is, that is so, du- it's so direct, right? We're on social media. We should be used to that kind of directness at this point in our lives, right? But let's make sure that we understand what James is saying here. Because elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus is clear when he says we are not to be of the world, but we, but we are in the world. So be in the world, Jesus says, but don't be of the world. Rather, what he's really saying is be sent in the world to rescue those who are of it. Let's turn to John, the book of John, chapter 17. Make a hard left. Go into the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 17, verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then he says in 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth because your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, So I have sent them into the world. You see that distinction he makes there. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So to be friends with the world means having a heart that is being formed by those things that characterize worldly passions and pleasures and a lifestyle that fulfills a desire for those passions. That makes sense. We kind of learned about that a little bit last week. In fact, First John chapter 2.15 tells us, John says this, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he, then he tells us right here, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So when we understand world, he's not saying, man, you just got to go outside today and see that beautiful blossoming spring tree and just hate that thing because it's the world. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the world system that threatens to take our passions and pleasures that don't align with the beauty and truth of God, right? So James is warning these churches of the temptation to become friendly with those desires that are not from the father. And therefore, when they're completely adopted, when they're gone after, when, they're, when we have a passion that drives us toward them, it makes one an enemy of God. When the pursuit of our life becomes engulfed by those things, James makes it clear that we are not able to maintain spiritual neutrality. Man, that's so hard for us to hear in this world because we have so many influences from so many places that are trying so hard to influence us and to draw out those desires and then let those desires be what drives us. And what James is saying here is that, man, there's just no neutrality, right? You can't fill the bucket up with all the same stuff and have it come out a pure fountain right? That's what James is trying to tell us. And this helps us to understand the seriousness of what it means to be conformed to the world instead of being transformed by the renewing of your mind, like Paul instructs us in Romans 12. James is saying, look, man, you cannot do both. You can't do both. Have you ever tried to be friends with two people who are enemies with one another? It just doesn't work very well. The problem is that each of your friends is going to see friendship with the other person as a betrayal of your friendship with them, right? If you've ever tried to do that, this, as James is pointing out, is actually far worse. We cannot claim to be friends with God, with the passions, the desires, the pleasures of God while still trying to straddle affection for the passions and pleasures of the world. That, by the way, God sent Jesus to deliver us from, and in reality, hates with a holy passion. James calls this adultery. And just in case we begin to start adding up all the things we don't do as a way to justify ourselves, James gets to the heart of the matter by saying that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So it's not only doing, right? How many times do we talk about that here at the church? It's not only doing, but it's a longing for those passions of the world that drive a person away from the person and the character of Jesus Christ. We also don't want to gloss over the word enemy here too quickly, because there are things the world loves that God hates with a perfect hate that he has enmity or he is enemies with. And that's because uh, secondly, God is jealous. It says in verse five for his spirit. So there's a lot of old Testament imagery that comes to mind when we think of God being jealous for the affections of his people. We might think, man, how can jealousy be an attribute of God? Like that just hits me wrong. That doesn't sound right. Well, Because God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, it's only right that he doesn't want his children bowing down to any other God or any other king who can't save, serve, or sanctify them. I I mean, in, in the same way that we're jealous, for example, for the affections of a spouse who we have covenanted with in marriage, God is jealous for his people's love his affections and desires to be for him and him alone. The rev- Now I got I got this revised version of verse 5. So let me read let me read verse 5 in James what we have. You want to turn back to James which says, do you suppose It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Here's a a revised version of that verse. It says, that spirit which he made to dwell in us yearneth, I didn't add the E-T-H, yearneth for us even unto jealous envy. I mean, man, you put that word envy in there and then it just like kind of drives you down another layer, doesn't it? So God has a jealous envy over us that is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and I would add perfectly kind of scary, right? Or concerning, if that feels a little bit like better and calmer for us this morning. But listen to what God told the Israelites after they had crafted this golden calf to worship. Let's go back, all the way back to the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 34, and as Moses brings down the new tablet containing the laws that God had given his people, because in his anger he had thrown down the original commandments and they broke, and here's what God has to say in verse 11, chapter 34 in Exodus. He says, observe what I command you this day, behold... I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Listen to this line, lest it become a snare in your midst. Be careful of who you make covenants with. Be careful of who you become friends with is what he's saying. Because he's saying, instead, this is what you're going to do, verse 13. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And here's some language. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Don't ever say the Bible's not blunt, man, right? Don't ever say that it's not just telling it like it is. It wants us to understand something about who God is. And so one of the names for God that maybe you never knew was that he's jealous, Right? Now, I don't know if God came walking through the door right now that we go, oh, hey, jealous, what's going on? But like it says right there that that is one of his characteristics. In fact, he identifies it as one of his names, that he's jealous. And so what this causes us to understand, right, as we look at verses like this, and they just tend to pass over us because we don't take them that seriously, is we understand that this, like all things, is a glory issue, man. In other words, the reason why God is so jealous over his people is because of how overwhelming his love is for them. And anything that threatens the glory that God commands his sons and daughters to give to him alone is something he's going to be jealous over because there is no better place, no more satisfying place, no better or safer place for you and for me than when God is getting all the glory through the passions and pleasures and decisions that we make concerning the desires of our life. Man, you guys are so quiet this morning. Like, did I just speak truth? Yeah, right there. It's a glory issue. When you see a friend or a spouse or a child make a decision that will ultimately not be good for their spiritual or their emotional or even their physical health. What's happening is you are jealous for their good. You're jealous for their good. You hate whatever is not contributing to their best good. You hate what you're really hating is that their glory is misplaced. So what they're holding dearest to their heart and their mind is something that ultimately is false and a counterfeit in the sense that is not going to bring them what is ultimate joy and fulfillment in their life, which we know can only come from Christ, right? So that's really what's bugging you. When you see your friends or a, or a spouse or a child make the decisions they make that are actually harming their life, you're jealous for their good. So it's a good day for us to consider those things that God might have a holy envy over in our lives, right? How will we know what those things are? Well, here's some examples. Look at the statement from your debit card purchases. Look at the schedule on your calendar. Look back at the last 10 windows you had opened on your computer. Look at what you recently binged. On Netflix, What are some of the thoughts and the words and images that your mind constantly snaps back to? Now listen, it doesn't mean all of those things are necessarily at enmity with God, that they're enemies with God. It means that these things may surface desires and affections for the passions of the world that far outweigh the passions of the spirit that lives inside of you. So you want to go far to see how far those passions have become rooted in your heart. Why? Because those passions are providing you with a faux joy, F-A-U-X. They're providing you with a faux joy. And faux joys lead us to faux faithfulness. The good news is that God has grace for all of our foes. He is gracious towards the humble, verse six. He gives more grace, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So listen to this. Even when worldliness becomes characteristic of our lives, grace remains characteristic of the God who redeems our life. When a proud, adulterous person like me humbles himself before God, he has more grace than the sum total of all of my worldliness. Does that make sense? I'm going to say that one more time. When a proud, adulterous person humbles himself or herself before God, he has more grace for them than the sum total of their worldliness. Paul said in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so we can't out sin the level and percentage and volume of God's grace man what encouraging news for us Christ likeness is more powerful than worldliness so when you see those areas that God would be jealous over and they bring you godly sorrow they surface godly remorse inside of you, it means that the spirit that God yearns jealously over in you is moving you back to God. The worldliness cannot conquer the godliness that is yours and is growing in you through the spirit that lives inside of you. This means his grace is drawing you close to Christ and further from those faux joys that make you foe faithful. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. (coughs) There's just nothing better for us than that this morning. That's the application point of all application points in a sermon right there. What happens when we draw near to the throne of grace is that we see worldliness as something that exists in here and not out there. If we see the world and the things of the world as these issues that exist out there and that, hey man, if I just stay away, it'll be okay, then we fail to see that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life originate in here. And then we fail to think of them as anything we need grace for. Right? It would be a crushing thing to think about those friendships we form with the world if God didn't give more grace. If all I had for you, if all Scripture had was just stop it, just stop doing what you're doing. Let's pray. What a miserable and crushing thing to walk out of here thinking of the amount of work that you have to do that you already know you're going to fail at. That's not the gospel. That's the anti-gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen to how B.B. Warfield describes this verse and this grace. Warfield was was a professor of theology at Princeton Seminary from 1887 all the way to 1921, back when I was a kid. Warfield writes this. When he sees us immersed in sin and rushing headlong to destruction, he does not turn from us. He yearns for us with jealous envy. It is in the hands of such love that we have fallen. And it is because we have fallen into the hands of such love that we have before us a future of eternal hope. Listen to this. When we lose hope in ourselves, when the present becomes dark and the future black before us, when effort after effort has issued only in disheartening failure and our sin looms big before our despairing eyes, when our hearts hate and despise themselves and we remember that God is greater than our hearts and cannot abide the least iniquity or sin, the spirit whom he has sent to bring us to him still labors with us. Hmm. Not in indifference or hatred, but in pitying love. Yes, his love burns all the stronger because we so deeply need his help. He is yearning after us with jealous envy. Oh man, I should have just read that this morning. Beware of worldliness, but do that by being more aware of God's grace. Grace is how the church is drawn back to the very throne of God. It's how we see God. Because number one, seeing God as an enemy of the world's passion shows us the seriousness of our sin. Seeing God as jealous over our idols shows us the seriousness of God. But seeing how God responds to proud sinners who humble themselves shows us the graciousness of God. And we need to see all three of these things so that we see God clearly and respond to Jesus rightly, knowing that he receives humble sinners tenderly. There is no better news for us this morning.